0: We are not going to solve hunger, in other words, by figuring out how, you know, farmers can triple the amount of food they can get from an acre of land. Um, we are going to solve hunger by really understanding more deeply why people in certain parts of the country or certain parts of the world are hungry and why others are well fed. And and that's going to have a different answer depending on where you are in the world. I think about sitting here in the San Francisco Bay Area home to billionaires, home to some of the richest people in the world, and yet I can walk out my door and walk 20 blocks from my house and see homeless, hungry people in the streets. That's a policy failure. It's not an agricultural failure. And so how you solve for that policy failure, again, it is going to be specific to to your own country, you know, your your own community.
1: Hello there. Welcome to the Chakula Podcast. I'm your host, Felices Mwalia. We bring to you all relevant issues and discussions about food in Kenya and beyond. We break down topics and dig deeper into day-to-day happenings in food and farming systems, giving a holistic view on the food we eat. Hello and welcome to another episode of the chakula podcast. Today we are very lucky enough to be hosting Anna Lape. She'll get a chance to introduce herself and share with us what she does. but the conversation today will be all about her debunking persistent myths about our food system and the structural causes of hunger and malnutrition and she'll be able to, live, to and she'll be able to share with us a global perspective. Global hunger is still rising and the world is still not on track to meet the 2030 zero hunger target of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. This is confirmed on the SOFI report. The number of people affected by hunger globally rose to as many as 828 million, an increase of about 46 million since 2020 and 150 million since the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic. Additionally, 3.1 billion people could not afford a healthy diet in 2020, up to 112 million from 2019, reflecting the effects of inflation in consumer food prices stemming from the economic impacts of COVID-19 pandemic and the measures put in place to contain it. Anna, thank you so much for joining me. I've shared the statistics and it would be very nice for you to share with us who Anna is, what is it that you do, and your take on the numbers. mm mm-hmm.
0: Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I, as you said, my name is Anna LePay. I am based in the San Francisco Bay Area in California. And for the past two decades or more, I have been working as a writer and advocate, and increasingly as a funder working with philanthropy to really push forward a vision of a food system that is uh, one that uh, values the planet and people and all the birds and bees, and that produces enough food for all of us to eat, but while at the same time protects our ecosystems. And uh, so when I when I hear those numbers about how many people still go hungry every year around the world and really sit with what it means, what those numbers mean in terms of lives impacted, families impacted, it's, it's heartbreaking. And it's even more heartbreaking to me because we know that that hunger is unnecessary.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We know that the world produces more than enough food to feed every single man, woman, child, and, and more. <laughs> and so we we know today that there is more than enough food for us all to, to have enough. Uh, and yet It's true. There is rampant hunger around the world and those numbers are increasing. And it's a reminder, as as those figures always are, that when we talk about hunger, we really have to go to the root causes and that it isn't about a scarcity of food. It's uh, as as my mother, Frances Moore LePay, has been saying for 50 years, it is a scarcity of democracy. It's a scarcity of people really having power over Uh, what kind of food is being grown, who has access to it, what kind of resources people have to either grow their own food or pay for good, healthy, nutritious food. So those are the kinds of questions we should be talking about when we are trying to understand the roots of hunger.
1: Yeah. And basically, Anna, from where you sit, what is it that you guys are doing to challenge
0: the current system? So what really inspires me is uh, to see the incredible social movements around the world that are showing in their own communities how you can have food systems that actually do address those root causes, that actually are supporting farmers to grow food in ways that doesn't damage soils, doesn't contribute to the climate crisis, that instead actually helps farmers be more resilient during the climate crises that we face, we will face, and helps grow abundant food. And one of those, uh, social movements that gives me so much hope is the movement for agroecology, this way of, of farming, a practice, a science, and a movement that really is about ensuring that our food systems work for people and for the planet. And to me, seeing how much the movements for agroecology have grown over the past two decades is is a huge source of inspiration.
1: Yeah. Anna, you mentioned that the current hunger we're facing, is unnecessary, and the world produces more than enough food for everyone to eat. But And you also mentioned some of the structural underlying courses. But I'm just thinking from the context which we operate on here in Kenya. Last year and this year we've been having a famine, we've been having a drought. The number of hungry people has actually been rising, specifically in the asylum regions. And my main question, and actually not even my main question, I know our listeners are actually asking themselves, is this also a problem that should be addressed?
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, what what you all are facing there is...
1: Yeah, um, but, but then how? How then do mm-hmm. we address? Because when you talk about climate change, you find that whenever we talk about we are hungry because of climate change, there are always never solutions to address this. But how?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And what I would say to that is that one of the ways that we need to be addressing what you're facing there is thinking about, you know, long-term, but also short-term. So in terms of the the long-term, we know that globally, the industrial food system contributes to almost a third, if not more, of global greenhouse gas emissions that are driving the climate crisis, making the kinds of droughts you're experiencing there worse than ever. And so we know that long-term, we really need to be thinking about how do we get fossil fuels out of food? How do we reduce the use of petrochemicals like pesticides? How do we reduce the reliance on fossil fuel intensive uh, synthetic fertilizer? Certainly in the industrialized north where we produce so much uh, crops to feed livestock or crops to feed corn-based ethanol, we need to rethink how we're using our farmland. But in the short term, we really need to be thinking about how governments uh, in, in countries like yours, you know, but how governments can incentivize and support farmers to start adapting to the kinds of climate shocks you're experiencing mm-hmm. and adopting farming practices that help to uh, help farmers grow food in times uh, of, of of little water, uh, and help be more resistant to drought. And ag- agronomists um, and those studying farming systems are showing us that these practices of agroecology, these practices where farmers really work with nature to deal with pests, they work with uh, Uh, soil systems to create soils that really have healthy microorganisms and can store carbon and store water well, that these farming systems are in the short term. Right now, some of the farming systems that we can be incentivizing and supporting uh, farmers to adopt to help them be more resilient during moments of drought. Yeah,
1: it's quite interesting because the government lifted a ban on GMOs Last, I think last month yeah, as a solution mm-hmm. to the current hunger crisis. So when you talk about yeah. long-term solutions, for them, it's not all about long-term solutions, but what can get I don't
0: know. Yeah, I saw that news here. And uh, and it, it reminds me that I think a lot of folks are still unclear about uh, what are the real impacts of genetically modified organisms and mm-hmm. what, what can these seeds actually do. What do they do? How do they work? Um, And how to separate out what these seeds actually are from what the companies selling them tell us they can do and they will do and they are. Most of the genetically modified seeds commercialized in the world today are highly limited in terms of what they do for farmers. They're basically either seeds that have been engineered to resist herbicides, so toxic in the most, in some cases, highly toxic herbicides, or they've been engineered to express an insecticide. So they've been engineered so that they themselves kind of repel insects. And some Seeds do both of those things. They both uh, resist the spraying of of an herbicide. So if you're a seed uh, that has that trait, then if you get sprayed with an herbicide, you you survive and the other crops in the field don't, or you express that insecticide. Uh, But these are traits that are very specific and they are tied to the profit interests of the companies who sell them because the companies who sell these seeds sell farmers at the same time the uh, chemical herbicides and pesticides that are used in conjunction with these seeds. Uh, What we see from the evidence in the field about what seeds are best suited for farmers dealing with moments of environmental crises, these are Biodiverse seeds, seeds that have been, you know, shared and saved uh, among farming communities that have adapted to local environments. Uh, And again, these genetically engineered seeds, they're not not locally specific. They are sold worldwide uh, to, again, deliver to farmers these very, very specific traits that I would argue are not what farmers need right now.
1: Mm -hmm. Actually, quite interesting for you to share that with us since you already have an experience. Do you work with farmers?
0: So yeah, I mean I, as I said, I, I myself am not a farmer, but I uh through my work both on the funding side and the and as a writer, connect with farming farmers and farming networks. I work for a foundation and we have a grant making program that supports a range of organizations, mostly in the US, but some around the world, that are supporting advocates that are trying to speak out and educate policymakers and consumers about the impacts of some of the biggest food companies in the world. uh, And also working with farming networks and farmers to help support those farmers that are trying to Adapt uh, more of these agroecological practices and help spread them uh, to other farming communities. Again, mostly in the U.S., but some around the world as well.
1: Yeah, but I'm I'm just curious, Anna. In the U.S., ha- how has the uptake on of, of agroecology been taken? You know what we see in this country
0: is is we have uh, an agricultural system that heavily subsidizes commodity growers who have few options other than growing the kinds of genetically engineered seeds I just described. Most of the corn now grown in the United States, most of the soy now grown in the United States are are genetically modified seeds and are grown with uh, chemical pesticides and synthetic fertilizer. And farmers who are growing these crops are heavily incentivized to uh, grow as much as they can on as much of the land as possible. And in the U.S., the majority of the crops we grow are actually not going directly to feed people, but they're either going to industrial livestock operations or now to corn-based ethanol production. And so there is Uh, a a voice among farming advocates and environmental advocates that have been trying to put pressure on our government to say, the system that you are subsidizing, it's not good for people. It's it's leaving many people in the U.S. hungry. Uh, It's not good for the planet. The industrial animal agriculture operations that uh, receive so many of these commodity crops, they're some of the biggest drivers of air pollution and water pollution in this country, not to mention the workplace abuses of uh, meat processing plants. Uh, we're trying to say that, you know, we really need to fundamentally rethink what would be growing in this country. Uh, and that would have benefits not just for the climate, but also for people's yeah. health uh, and for workers and for farmers. Um, and, you know, when I talk with farmers, I remember you know, talking with a, a commodity grower here in the US and and he was sharing with me that, you know, he was really sympathetic to uh those who are are calling out the environmental and social impacts of this way of growing food. But he said as a farmer here, it's so hard to transition, it's so hard to have the financial support to make any other choices. And so farmer advocates and others here in this country are working very hard, uh, to try to create policies that will help those farmers, uh,
1: to transition, to think differently about how they're growing food and what they're growing. Yeah. So basically the context, it's also a bit similar here. The government really doesn't support so much farmers who want to transition.
0: Yeah. I, I know it's, it's many years ago <laughs> that mm-hmm. I was, uh, in Kenya, my, um, Mother Francis Moore Pay and I were reporting a book we wrote together called Hope's Edge. And each chapter was a story of a different place around the world where we found inspirational social movements really trying to get at these roots of hunger. And in Kenya, the story we told was the story of the Green Belt Movement and Wangari Mathai. Yeah. And the reporting was about. 20 or so years ago, I was there. But I'll never forget uh, going to one of the communities where the Green Belt Movement was organizing and talking with farmers in that community who were telling us, you know, for years, the government uh, had been really pushing their community to grow coffee for export. Mm-hmm. And they're explaining you know, they were growing coffee for export as they had been subsidized, encouraged, incentivized. And the year we were there, when they looked at the costs that this farmer was explaining, the costs that they had to spend on the seeds and and the other inputs, the pesticides and the other things that they had to uh, invest in to grow coffee and other crops for export, uh, and When they took those costs into account and they looked at how much they were able to get from the middlemen who they were selling their products to for export, at the end of the day, they had very little money left over. And in the case of coffee, they said, you know, with little money left over, it's not like we can eat coffee. How much they appreciated how the Green Belt movement and the farmer educators that were, were part of that movement, have been training their community to invest time and resources into growing kitchen gardens. And they showed us these kitchen gardens that the community had started to grow thanks to this organic farming educator that had um, been working with them Mm -hmm. through the Greenbelt movement. And they were showing us how they were starting to grow food again, real food that they could eat. And so despite how impacted they were by the terrible export markets, that they were able to have that local food security. And so, you know, this is just a a story that has always stayed with me of seeing you know, what that looks like on the ground when communities have that kind of training and education uh, and encouragement to really focus on their own food sovereignty and to to realize the dangers of being tied to a global global market, uh, the dangers of being tied to a farming system where your input costs for pesticides and fertilizers can skyrocket from one year to the next. How important it is for farmers to have that kind of independence. Actually, that's quite impressive. Where can we get a copy? You should be able to find it. The title again is called Hope's
1: Edge. Hope's Edge. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anna, I want to take you back. You mentioned the the quote by your mom, where she talks about hunger is not a scarcity of food, but rather a scarcity of democracy. Is it possible for you to just expound more?
0: Sure. So I think this is such a profound idea. You know, I think many of us, wherever we live, whatever privileges we have or don't have, we are acutely aware that there are hunger, hungry people in the world, and, and you shared it at the top of our conversation, just the, the scale of hunger. It is really important to remember that is, that is needless hunger. Needless in the sense that there, as I said, there is enough there is enough food in the world. That fundamentally, uh, to have hunger in a world of abundance is a political crisis. And it's a, a crisis, therefore, that can only be solved through political action. Through mobilization, through building power in communities, it is not a you know it is not a technical problem. It's not an agricultural problem. We are not going to solve hunger. In other words, by figuring out how you know farmers can triple the amount of food they can get from an acre of land, Um, we are going to solve hunger by really understanding more deeply why people in certain parts of the country or certain parts of the world are hungry and why others are well fed. And, and that's going to have a different answer, depending on where you are in the world. I think about sitting here in the San Francisco Bay Area, home to billionaires, home to some of the richest people in the world. And yet I can walk out my door and walk 20 blocks from my house and see homeless, hungry people in the streets. That's a policy failure. It's not a agricultural failure yeah. uh, and so how you solve for that policy failure again it is going to be specific to to your own country, you know your own or your own community. how we solve for hunger here in the U.S might look different from how we solve for it elsewhere. but it looks the same in the sense that mm-hmm. it looks like us looking at those political underpinnings, the democratic failures that have led to hunger in a world of plenty.
1: I really like what you say because it's what we've been trying to push at the Root to Food Initiative and trying to say, actually, food is a political issue. And when it comes to food hunger, it needs to be addressed from a political aspect. And I love that
0: framing, too, because, <laughs> you know, I think part of the tragedy of needless hunger is that individuals, individual families, even individual communities, you know, feel a sense of it's, it's um, an individual's fault or yeah. it's failure of a community to solve this problem, when really the only way to solve these roots of hunger is collectively, the only way to solve these roots of hunger is, uh, you know, at a much higher scale. And and that's where the conversation needs to happen.
1: I'm just curious to learn more or basically to understand more when you say as collectives, yes, there's so much, uh, we can address the issue, but from a political aspect, but beyond that, how can we address the issue as individuals again? I as Feli or me as you as Anna, how do we? Try? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh
0: yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know, from that the
1: political angle, it- maybe just to also add, because you find that pol- the political process might be so slow, it takes a lot of time. At times you might even want to give up because of the change. You know, you're not seeing the change that you want to see. So how do we then complement the political aspect?
0: Right, right. Well, I think there's two ways to answer that. First is, yes, political change can be (laughs) can be very long and tortuous and circuitous. But one of the things that I have seen real power around is the ability to make more change more immediately on uh, the the local level politically. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'll give you the example again. I'm in the U.S., so my examples are coming from here. There has been a movement around the country to uh, address the fact that we have minimum wage laws in this country that are far below the cost of living. So you can make minimum wage in this country and still not not afford to feed your family. Changing the national minimum minimum wage is a decades-long effort that has failed to achieve much change. We have seen incredible success of city governments changing the minimum wage laws in their communities so that people in communities across the country have seen minimum wage laws change so that there are now some places where people have minimum wages in communities that are living wages, where you can afford to feed your family. So that's an example of a political change that if you bring it down to a more local level, you can see some achievements possible on the shorter timeframe. The second way I'd answer that question is that, while we are fighting for the big changes we know we need, whether that is around pushing for real action on climate, uh, we know that if we don't address the climate change, hunger will increase because we will have real crises of production because of climate shocks. While we're waiting for that kind of and fighting for that kind of global change at the most intimate local levels, you know, there are ways we can come together here in the U.S. We, we talk about what we call mutual aid, this idea of local communities uh, developing ways to uh, provide emergency food to the most needy in their communities, to encourage small-scale community gardens to provide accessible, healthy food in communities. Those are some of the ways that are community building, but not necessarily Mm -hmm. fighting for that big political change that we may not see in our lifetimes.
1: Thank you so much for joining me, Anna. Do you have any words that you want to say that you've not shared with us?
0: Thank you so much for having me. Uh, if if folks want to learn more about some of the work that we support at the foundation and that I've engaged in as a uh, author, people can learn more at realfoodmedia.org and sign up for the listserv for that organization there. And And I guess the final thing I would say you know, talking to you and thinking about my own experience in Nairobi, mm-hmm. my own experience with Kenya, uh, being in Kenya with Wangari Mathai, is thinking about the arc of her movement and her work and her life is honestly one of the biggest sources of inspiration for me. You know, when we met Wangari,
1: mm-hmm.
0: it was a little bit more than 20 years ago. Yeah. The movement had just lost its biggest uh, donor, uh, their funding was, uh, uh, you know, unclear. Uh, the organic farming educators and their networks were being threatened with arrest for teaching farmers organic farming. The political situation in Kenya. was I, I didn't know about
1: that, but interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: The political situation in Kenya, as you know well more than me, was highly unstable.
1: Yeah. And
0: uh, you know, and I and 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 I remember as my mother and I left uh uh left kenya uh and and were so touched by wangari and and meeting her family and connecting with uh the folks in her network you know we were so concerned that that the next we would hear from her is that the everything had collapsed and you know that the movement had had folded and yet over the following few years you know we heard that uh you know there was a change in leadership in the government. Yes. That her constituents encouraged her to run for a seat of parliament, that she did and that she won. Yeah. And then just a few years after that, she got that fateful phone call we all know she got, where she yeah. was informed that she won the Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. And a friend of ours was with Wangari in the car when they got that phone call. Yeah. And Wangari's first reaction, her first words upon hearing, that she had won this incredible, incredible recognition. She said, we won. Wow. Not I won. It was about the we and the greater we. That is profound story of, of who Wangari was and, and yeah. how she built her movement and the work that she did in the world. And I think it is such a story for all of us. This is all about something so much bigger than any one of us. And we never know, we never know the impacts of the work that we have. Uh, and we, we never will, you know, same with <laughs> Wangari and Mathai, she never could have dreamed, uh, how much uh, her impact would grow in her lifetime. And and so I really, I think about that story um, in just having this conversation with you and think about the inspiration uh, that Wangari's life represents.
1: What a good way to end the conversation. Very powerful, It's quite interesting. And thank you so much for sharing that with us. Well, thank you again so much mm-hmm. for your work. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I really hope this is not the first and the last episode we've done together. I just hope we'll get to do more together. And I also hope we'll get a chance to do one with you and your mom.